My name is Pastor I'm Tyler. Pastor isn't in my name. I'm the worship pastor here at Westside, but um, every now and again I get the opportunity to come and fill in and to speak, and I am excited about the series that we have been going through. If you're wondering where Jason is, just blow up his phone this morning and he can tell you himself. Um, no, actually, one thing I want to talk about, Pastor Jason, um, before I get into what we're getting into this morning. Um, today is actually the four-year anniversary Sunday of him being pastor at Westside and preaching here. Um, and I, we love Jason to death. My wife and I, are, we love Jason and Courtney and the kids. I know you guys know them very well and you love them. But one thing that, that I have seen, and some of you may not know if you're new with us, um, about four years ago, when Jason started here, um, Westside was sitting at about 20 to 25 people. And he always jokes that that was everybody, their mom, their aunt, and their cat. And they all voted for him to be pastor. And in those last few years, we have seen um, not just a growth uh, in terms of numbers, but we have seen a growth for people who love God's word, man, and people who love Jesus and want to be more like him. And I have the opportunity to work with him throughout the week. He pours himself into these scriptures so that he can faithfully guide us as a leader and as our shepherd to guide us through what it is to love God's word and to love Christ and to be more like him. So if you get the opportunity today, send Pastor Jason a text or shoot him a message on Facebook and tell him, happy anniversary, we love you, Pastor. Can you guys do that for me today? All right, awesome. Yeah, give it up. Thank God for Pastor Jason. Thank him for that. All right, so for those of you who don't know, we've been in our Break It Down series. What, essentially, what we have been doing in this Break It Down series, if you haven't been with us, we have been trying to essentially break down the gospel and look at what it is so we can better understand it, one, as believers, and two, better communicate it. Now, the first illustration we had a few weeks ago was like we were standing before the sharks at Shark Tank and pitching this idea of what the gospel is. If someone came up to you in the supermarket or whatever and said, hey, I've seen you go to that church west side or I hear that you love Jesus, what's that gospel thing? So the, the purpose of this series is an attempt to unpack the gospel, to break it down and so that we can better understand it and better communicate it. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we've kind of been using this as a guide. Peter says to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you and to do it with gentleness and respect. And so that's our hope this morning. We've kind of been guiding through and using this acronym that we borrowed from Dare to Share Ministries. Um, it's essentially just an acronym that uses the word gospel as the guide, G-O-S-P-E-L. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Two weeks ago, we talked about how the gospel was the good news because it starts with God. We saw that the very first verse in the entire Bible was, in the beginning, God. That the gospel is the good news because it starts with God. And we learned about his characteristics. We learned about his traits that we see in the Bible. That he is father. That he is sovereign. That he is holy. That he is ruler. That he is owner and creator. And many other things that we couldn't get to in 40 minutes expositing God, for goodness sake. Which is incredible. Um, and then last week, we talked about our sins how our sins separate us from the holy and loving God who created us, and they required a payment that we could not pay, which is why Jesus came. And this week, we're going to be jumping past the paying everyone. We're skipping ahead to the end, and I'm, I have the opportunity to preach on eternal life this morning, which I am excited to bring to you. Um, so God, our sins, paying everyone life. This week, we're going to be jumping to the end of the acronym and looking at life, eternal life. Um, I think something that we often think about when we hear the words eternal life 
You, you maybe associate that with death and then maybe walking through a door or going through you know, the light at the end of the tunnel, and that is the moment where eternal life begins. That once we die, then we experience eternal life, regardless of, of which side we're on or whether or not we've accepted Christ. Um, but I want to talk this morning about what Paul is telling the Corinthians in this chapter and how eternal life doesn't necessarily just happen when we die, but eternal life starts now and lasts forever. That eternal life is something that when you trust and put your faith and hope in Jesus Christ and receive the gift of salvation, the gift of grace, that that is something that saves us now, starts now, and lasts forever. Lasts forever. Maybe this illustration will help a little bit. This is a picture of Scott Kelly. Raise your hand if you know who this guy is. Yeah, some of you guys like NASA. Scott Kelly is an astronaut uh, with NASA, and uh, many years ago he was in the Navy. He was a pilot, and he um, was talking about how uh, he was sitting in his dorm room one, one afternoon, and he was reading through this book by Tom Wolfe called The Right Stuff. And Some of you may know that book, and it's really awesome. But anyways, uh, Scott Kelly's reading this book, and he would later on become an astronaut. And in March of 2015, he actually left Earth in a rocket to go to the International Space Station for like a year. He was one of the first people to ever spend that much time in space. And they were trying to figure out what happens to the human body, what happens to the brain when someone is exposed or taken away from gravity for that amount of time. And what's interesting to me is that Scott Kelly has in his book, Endurance, he talks about everything that happened aboard the International Space Station. And he also talks about preparing and what that was like leading up to not just going up into space, but being an astronaut to begin with. And he has a quote from when he was talking about reading that book by Tom Wolfe called The Right Stuff in college and how that spurred him to become an astronaut. He says this in his book, This wasn't just an exciting adventure story. This was something more like a life plan. These young men flying jets in the Navy did a real job that existed in the real world. Some of them became astronauts, and that was a real job too. These were hard jobs to get, I understood that, and some people did get them. It could be done. What drew me to these Navy pilots was not the idea of the right stuff, a special quality these few brave men had. It was the idea of doing something immensely difficult, risking your entire life for it, and surviving. And Scott would go on to say when people ask him, when did you decide you wanted to be an astronaut? And he said, I thought it was in that dorm room in his book. But he says, it actually started when I was a kid. And I think eternal life being our subject this morning is is very similar to us as Christians. That we have that idea that eternal life is something that happens in an instant and it happens when we die. But just like Scott with being an astronaut and him deciding to go to space, he didn't say, well, I got drawn in the lottery or, or I made the cut. I'm going to go up to space. I can't wait. And until then, I'm just going to eat McDonald's and roll around on my couch all day. There were years of preparation and years of his life before he became an astronaut, while he was training, and afterwards that will affect him forever. And it's the same for us. So we're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look at how the gospel had saved us. We're going to look at the fundamentals of what that looks like, how the gospel saved us. We're going to look out at how the gospel is saving us today, impacting our lives now. And then we will look at how the gospel will save us, what our eternity looks like in light of the gospel. So the big idea this morning is eternal life starts now and lasts forever. And since we're talking about the gospel heavily this morning, I want us to read aloud 
what the gospel is. It's a working definition that we have been using. You guys have been a part of the sermon the last two weeks, and you get an opportunity to do it again, man. So let's lift our voices and read this aloud together, what the gospel is. You guys ready? The gospel is the good news of God. I think it's back one. I might have jumped ahead. Yeah. All right, lift your voices. The gospel is the good news of God, loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry in word and deed of His Son, Jesus Christ. So let's use that as our working definition of the gospel as we walk through these points that are in the text this morning. First of all, the gospel saved you. The gospel saved you. I'll say it again. The gospel saved you. Yeah, amen. Look with me in the first verse of our text this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse, verse 1. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, there it is, I preached to you, which you received, which you received. I want you to grab your pen or your highlighter and lean over in your neighbor's Bible and circle that, underline that, make sure they're awake and paying attention. Excuse me. That word received in the Greek looks like this. And if you speak Greek, I am sorry, but I'm about to butcher this word for you. This word actually translates to paralambano, which actually doesn't just mean received, like a gift that you get, but it actually means to join oneself to. It's a word that is used to make two things one. Very interestingly enough, it's the same word that's used in the New Testament for when a husband and a wife are married and the marriage is consummated, that they are receiving each other, that they are made one. And Paul is saying that the gospel is very much like that for us, that it's not something that we just receive Yes, it is a gift and something that is given to us, but Paul is saying this is something that you were made one with. That when you received the good news of the gospel that I preached to you, it wasn't just something you heard, it wasn't just something that you understood, but it was something that you became. It was something that you became one with. I'm wondering, do we we view the gospel that way? Do we view the good news of Jesus Christ as something that we are, are, are made part of? I think a lot of us have, have, especially in Western evangelical Christianity, we have this idea that the gospel is something that saves us in a moment, and it's something that, that, is a, that happens in a moment in our life and doesn't affect the rest of it. But what is incredible to me is that Paul uses this word that it is something that we are physically joined to. Is the gospel something that you are joined to this morning in your entire life? When you think on your salvation, do you think of that time you were at that camp when you were 14, 15 years old and you made that decision, but it hasn't affected your life up until now? That Christ has not become more beautiful to you in the years and years you have walked with Him? Guys, the gospel is something that we are made a part of, not apart from, a part of, that we are joined to. And so, Paul is saying this is something that you were made one with, but how did that happen? We're going to go a little fundamental this morning, going to kind of go back to the roots, which I think is important because Paul says, I will remind you, and so I'm going to do the same thing. But how, how were we saved? How was this something that we were joined to? How is the gospel something that I am made one with? How did the gospel save you? First of all, it's by grace. By grace. Um, I love the definition that we have running for grace here at Westside, that we often say it's an unearned gift from an unobligated giver. Um, maybe uh, some Christmas morning you were expecting socks and a tie, but I don't know, you got a motorcycle or something. Something that was, or I don't know, maybe you're, maybe you're expecting a broom and a mop, but you got like a cool KitchenAid mixer. I'm trying to play both sides here, guys. But 
Wives, your wife will like a KitchenAid mixer. Get her one of those. They like those. So anyways, you maybe you receive a gift on Christmas morning or something that, that you weren't expecting, and, and it was extremely expensive or very thoughtful, and you either know who gave it to you, but you can't figure out why they did this for you because you're a jerk to them all year and they love you anyways, or you can't figure out maybe somebody came up to you, uh, I don't know, at, at church or at work, and they handed you something, uh, a blank envelope, and said, hey, this is from someone who just wanted to bless you today. And you open it up, and there's something in there that can help you out. And you're just thinking, gosh, I don't know who to thank. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. Those, when those moments happen for my wife and I or our friends, we often say, let those moments remind you of grace. Let those moments remind you of an unearned gift, because you didn't do nothing to earn that motorcycle, from an unobligated giver, from your spouse or your friend or your family member who loves you and cares for you. Paul puts it this way, and it's spelled out very clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 5, how you have been saved by grace. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loves us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By what? Say it aloud. What's the word? By grace you have been saved. Paul is saying that this grace, the same in a similar way that we would receive a gift that we had not earned from someone who was unobligated, is something that we are given through salvation. That the gift of grace is given to us through Christ Jesus, even when we were dead. And that shows me something incredible, which we've talked about multiple times here. What can a dead person do? Nothing. If you remember my last sermon, I showed you a picture of dead people, and some of you gasped. I'm not going to do that this weekend. But we were physically dead. We were dead in our sins and in our trespasses. And it says in Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in mercy, the motivation that he has for drawing us out of the depths of death is love. And he gives us the gift of grace motivated by love. So we have to understand that the gospel has saved us first by grace. By grace. Secondly, it's through faith. Through faith. The gospel has saved you by grace and through faith. Through faith. Some of you hear the word faith, and I think we, we may be a little confused on what that term is, or we hear the word used inappropriately or, or, or wrongly in, in many ways. Um, Everyone has faith. You have faith in the pew that you are sitting in right now that the person who built that thing didn't put a whoopee cushion under it after they finished it or they built it wrong. You have faith in in the person who built your car. Every time you get behind the wheel of that vehicle, you trust that it is going to operate properly. Now, you don't blindly step into that vehicle that you found at a, I don't know, a pawn shop or something out back, and you're not sure if it starts, and that you're randomly hoping that this is something that is going to work out. Faith is something that we are assured of. It is something that we have a promise in. Hebrews 11.1 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. You say, what does that mean? Well, the author of Hebrews starts to go through the hall of faith, talking about all of the the patriarchs of of humanity and how everything that they rested on, the faith and the hope that they had, was in a coming Messiah, was in someone who was going to come and redeem us back to our Father in heaven and make us one with God again. And so now us, on this side of the cross, if those patriarchs came in, they would see that we have seen salvation, we have seen the Messiah that now that faith that we have is in the person that they are actually physically able to see now. 
Interestingly enough, we have that same conviction. That is the conviction and the assurance that we lean on. The faith that we have is not just some blind step, Indiana Jones, hoping there's something there, but it's the assurance that we know through God's Word that Christ has come, that we know that we have received this gift of grace, that we, that we call on His Word, the assurance of His Word, the conviction of His Word, that, that I will uh, do not fear I will be with you even to the end of the age. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. All of these things that we can walk through and an- hold our lives to in an anchor is the faith that we have. So it's not just by grace, this gift that we are given, but it's also through faith. Paul says it in the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. He says, And raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You know what I love about this passage? is that it's not within you to do this on your own. It's not within you to have the faith that you should have. It's not within you to receive the grace that you received. But it comes through Christ Jesus and the price that He paid on the cross. Paul says it that this is not of your own doing. This is of God through Christ so that no man may boast. So we this morning understanding how the gospel in terms of our life and the eternal life that we have, first of all, we have to understand how the gospel saved us and and understand that we are saved by grace through faith. You say, Tyler, this is extremely fundamental. We all know this. We've been coming to Westside for four years and we've heard faithful preaching of the gospel. Why are you reminding me of this? Well, if you look in that first verse, Paul thought that it was very important to remind the Corinthians of that fundamental fact as well. And they had just heard it, not but a couple decades or even a decade beforehand. And something you have to understand about the Corinthians and their culture is that after Paul had planted this church, they were divided among themselves, among different doctrines and things were going on that they were, they were disagreeing on in terms of, of the resurrection or, or who they should listen to in terms of preaching and what they should do if they should stay loyal to one spouse or to many. A lot of things were going on. And so Paul said, you guys need to get back to the basics. You need to remember, first of all, the gospel that I preach to you, which you are made one with, which you have received. When you get that piece in order, other things will follow. There are some uh, Bible commentators who put it this way. Um, There's a bunch of authors, so I just call them Bible commentators. Um, Paul took these Corinthian believers back to the basics of the message that they had welcomed and received. Because acceptance of that gospel had saved them, they should hold firmly to it. To do otherwise would mean they had believed in vain. If they could be so easily swayed to other messages, tangents, and untruths, perhaps what they claimed as belief was not belief at all. If the faith that they thought they had could not assure them of salvation, then that faith was worthless. Then that faith was worthless. I think that holds true for us today, this morning. That if we can't hold, hold fast to those truths that the gospel saved us by grace through faith and that it's not of our own doing and the only thing we contributed to our salvation was the sin that caused us to need it in the first place. We hold fast to those things. If we don't, what we believe in is in vain. And Paul says it here. 
But one thing that is beautiful about this is when the gospel saves us, Christ doesn't just save us from something. He doesn't just save us from our sin. But he saves us from our sin and to something, more importantly, to someone, to himself. That he will save us and he has saved you from your sin and to himself. Galatians 2.20 puts it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He doesn't just save us from our sins, but he brings us to life. And it says in the scriptures that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places with him. So we're not just saved from something, but we are saved to something, more importantly, someone. So if this life that we now live by faith in the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us, where does that take us now? Well, we talked about how the gospel has saved you. The gospel saved you. Let's talk for a minute about how the gospel is saving you. That's the second point. Our next point is the gospel is saving you. The gospel is saving you. Look with me in, the, in verse 1 again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, should be underlined in your Bible by now, in which you stand. In which you stand. That word stand is, is a present tense term that is something that you are physically in now, that you are being obedient in, that you are living in. Um, this is a picture of downtown Dallas-Fort Worth, um, a giant interchange. I don't know if you've ever been, but if you have not been, don't go. It's terrible. Um, actually, I grew up there. I loved it. That area is terrible. But growing up in Dallas-Fort Worth, there was always something being built or improved. Anytime I ever needed to, to drive to work, which was like only 10 minutes away, but it took a half hour to get there because lane closures, exits were blocked off. There were pavement guys working out there, tons of road crews, lots of buildings being constructed. And in 2008, I moved to Colorado, met my wife, and then since then we've moved around and ended up here. But 10 years later, man, every time we go back to visit Dallas, it's the same exact story. It's the same story. There's always something under construction. Why? Why? You can say it. It's growing, right? Dallas is always under construction because it is still growing, and it is always growing. If you go there, you can see that that is evident. But our Christian lives are very similar. That if we understand that the gospel saved us by grace through faith, that now the gospel is saving us, we have a life that we now live that is constantly under construction, that is constantly under repair, constantly being worked on, because the life that we now live, although we still live it in the flesh, we will struggle and battle against sin throughout the life that we live now. That we are not, when we are, when we are saved, we are, not, we are saved from our sin and to himself, but we are not made 100% perfect and sinless that we still struggle in this life. That's why some of us who are believers are, are, are struggling with our finances. We, we can't seem to get along with our spouse. We can't seem to, to raise our kids in the way that they should go. It's because there is still something inherently wrong with us that will not be fully righted until the day of Christ's return. Now, the, the way that God looks at us now is, is, is through the lens of righteousness that is given to us by Him and through Christ. But we will still struggle and battle with the flesh from the day that we are saved to the day that we are die and then, and, and then resurrected again. 
Paul puts it this way, and he can relate if you, or you can relate if you feel it this way. Paul says in Romans chapter 7, verses 18 through 20, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, this is a, you got to understand the Apostle Paul. This is a guy who, who originally was a killer and a prisoner of Christians, or an imprisoner of Christians, and then eventually was knocked off his high horse by the Lord Jesus himself, converted, becomes Paul, and then builds most of what we know as the Christian church today. That guy... When, with the authority that he has when he speaks, as though Christ were saying it himself when he repeats those words, that guy is saying that I know what I should do, but I struggle, and I can't do it, and the things that I know I shouldn't do, I'm constantly doing. He goes on to say, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this flesh, from this, from this body? And I wonder if you guys feel the same way. I know I do, man. Day after day, I know, man, I should have gotten up earlier so I could spend more time in this, so I could, so I could hit my knees. I need to lead my wife in the way that we read God's word in our, in our, in our household or, or take her to the Lord with me in prayer. I need to not show the, people, show the people on Westwood the sign of my people when they cut me off and I don't know how to deal with my, my frustration or my anger that I know what I should do, but I don't do it. And Paul understood that that is a very real thing. That's real for him and true for him, and it's true for us today. But just as I said a minute ago, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That the power that is given to us, that the, that, that the will that we are given to be able to turn from these things is not of our own doing either. That is amazing to me. That in the same way that that your salvation has nothing to do with you and your works, how the gospel is saving you now, your sanctification, which is just a big word for being made more like Jesus, that is not within you either. It's not within you to muster up the strength and the courage and the willpower and the determination to say, I'm not going to be mad at my wife today. I'm not going to get upset at my boss at work. I'm not going to gossip about what's her name. And I'm not going to frivolously spend my money. It's not within you to do that on your own. And that's why Paul says, thanks be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that the same one who saved us is the one who is saving us, the one who is guiding us and leading us by himself and through his word. How does this affect your life today? How does this affect you? Do you lean on your own strength and do you lean on your own, uh, your own willpower to, to muster yourself through this, uh, through this problem that you're in the midst of right now? that you're constantly battling with this thing and, and you know that you've just got to you know, strap up your boots and, and get ready and hit the road and just work harder until it gets done? Or do you realize it is not within me? Do you echo what Paul says in Romans that I know what I should do, but I can't? And then submit to Christ and, and ask the Lord for grace and the same grace and mercy that he gave us when he saved us to save us now, to continue on this journey with us. And the idea here is not perfection, um, but the idea is progress. We say it here all the time. It's, it's okay to not be okay, but it's just not okay to stay that way. Now, we're not looking for perfection. We're looking for progress. We're looking for progress. We'll say it this way, that as believers now, we are not sinless, but we do sin less. 
as believers, we are not sinless, but we strive to sin less. Knowing that, that the correction for, for taking the right steps in our lives are, is not within our own power and our own doing. But that comes from the grace of God. So we are not sinless, but we do sin less. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Um, Romans chapter 6, just a little bit earlier before those, those passages that we quoted or that I read from a moment ago. Um, Paul says this, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become bondservants or slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I want you, if you don't have that verse or that, or that uh, part of your Bible highlighted or underlined, I want you to turn there now. Romans chapter 6, verse 22 through 23. Write that in your notes. Spend time in that verse, man. Because what, what this is telling us is that we are no longer, since we are saved from our sin and to himself, we are now bondservants. We are joined with the gospel and we are bondservants now to God. People who now, because He saved us, because He loved us and showed us His mercy, we now give, we serve our lives back to Him. And in that process, that word sanctification, we are made more like Christ. And so if the gospel had saved us by grace through faith, and if that same gospel, the good news of Jesus, is saving us, in light of this verse... We can trust and know that the good news of Jesus Christ will save us. That the gospel will save you. Our third point this morning. The gospel will save you. Let's read through these two verses again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, in which you received, made one with, in which you stand, are living now, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Unless you believed in vain. The gospel is saving us. What Paul is saying here is that this is something that is sustaining. That the good news of the gospel is not something that that changed us and is changing us, but it will continue to change us forever. Not just now, but through eternity. And do you remember earlier when we were talking about the context of 1 Corinthians, how the Corinthians were divided and some of them were believing something and some were believing the other thing? The main thing that Paul is getting to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the theme of the resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because one of the big things for the Corinthians was that they were hearing from multiple teachers that one, was Christ resurrected? We weren't sure about that. Or was he? And two, if Christ is or isn't resurrected, are we resurrected? Can we be resurrected in the new, in the new life to come? And so Paul is coming to address this. But what I need to address this morning is if we don't have the resurrection, if we don't have the resurrection, first of all, of Jesus Christ, then we don't have the gospel. We do not have the gospel if we do not have the resurrection. Paul goes on to say in this very chapter that if we believe that Christ is in our hope, our hope for this life only and that he wasn't resurrected or that we will not be resurrected, then we are the most to be pitied. That we are the most to be pitied if we live our lives thinking that we are just living our lives, well, as good people, we're doing the right thing, our desire is, is to honor Christ, but we're not really sure if he's resurrected, and if we die, we're not sure if we're going to be resurrected. Paul says that we are to be pitied, that this is something that we hold fast to, 
That's why Easter Sunday is a big deal. Because every single year we celebrate and we should celebrate every single day that He is alive, man. That He is risen. That Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He also appeared to me. We believe these words at Westside. That Jesus is alive. Can you say amen to that? Jesus is alive this morning and physically somewhere. And so what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians is that we also will be alive. That, that the, the sleep that he is referring to, that when we die we will sleep, but we will be resurrected on the return of Christ. In the return of Christ. So we have to believe on the resurrection. If you come here and, and you say then you know that you believe in the gospel, the resurrection is one of those closed-handed issues. It's non-negotiable for us. This is something that we will stand on because it's what gives us our hope. It's what gives us our peace. It's what gives us our strength to drive forward to know that if He conquered death, if Christ conquered sin in the grave, then death in the Scriptures, as it says, has no victory and sin has no hold on our lives. Amen? That is what we believe in this morning. Um, Augustine once said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't, it's not the gospel you believe, but it is yourself. Um, so take that nugget with you. Um, Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, um, 17 through 19, that we are most to be pitied. And there's a man who understood this. Um, this is a picture of William Cowper. Uh, some of you may know him. He was a poet and a hymn writer in the mid-1700s. Um, Cowper was actually offered a position, um, I'm sorry, offered a position in 1763 as the clerkship of journals to the House of Lords. This was clearly in Europe. At this time, he underwent a deep state of anxiety and depression, and he actually attempted to take his own life like three separate times. Um, he tried to harm himself with something sharp, and that broke in the midst of that. He tried to um, tie a, a rope around his neck, which snapped after he blacked out and he woke up and he was still alive. And then he tried, uh, tr- he tried to drink this substance, this essentially cough syrup that had a bunch of other stuff in it. And uh, he tried to down it all, but every single time he went to reach for it, uh, he, he kept writing that his hand would seize up, and he couldn't, he couldn't physically grab the bottle. And so he got frustrated, and he threw the bottle across the room, and it shattered And he spent the next year recovering. So he never took that position. But about six or seven years later, he wrote this song that that you may have sang growing up and that we sing often here. It's called, There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. One of the things that Cowper said to one of his friends, he actually wrote a letter to John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, and John said, tell me about your conversion, tell me about what happened with this. And he said, I'm not amazed that God is so gracious to save me from ending my life three times, but what I'm amazed is that the gospel saved me from my sins and gave me eternal life. That the gospel saved me from my sins now, from what I was trying to engage in now, and saved me forever saved me for eternity, that I now have that hope in Christ. And we sing that song here, but around the same time he wrote that song, William Cowper also wrote this poem. And this poem is about the resurrection. He says, Contemplate when the sun declines thy death with deep reflection. And when again he rising shines, 
the day of resurrection that William Cowper understood and knew that in the midst of him trying to harm himself, that God didn't just save him from harming himself, but he saved him from, he saved him from his sin, the ultimate harm self-inflicted on ourselves and rebelling against God and saved him and delivered him eternal life through the resurrection. So I've got a few things I want to ask you, but the band is going to come up and lead us in a time of response. Um, but first thing, I want to ask you, how has the gospel changed your life? How has the gospel changed your life? Do you understand and know what Christ has done? Do you believe that the gospel saved you? That the good news of God loving and saving lost mankind through the ministry and work of His Son saved us by grace through faith and then is saving us now? That He gives us the power, that he, that he doesn't just save us from our sin, but He saves us to Himself. And in that, He gives us the strength by His Spirit to make these decisions as we go through our day to honor Him and to respect Him and to love Him and to, and to move forward in obedience because of what He's done for us. And lastly, do you believe and do you know that He is alive? And that that, resurrec- that resurrection is, is part of the foundation of what we believe and gives us the hope to move forward. Not just now, but for all of eternity. You know what's interesting to me? Just like, that, just like our salvation when, when God saves you, that that's not about you, essentially it's not from you, and the way that God, the gospel saves us now is not from you, but it saves you. The resurrection's not about you either. And the resurrection is not you saving yourself in your own strength. Do you know what we will be doing for eternity? It's not fishing with Uncle Joey. It's not going to Krispy Kreme an unlimited amount of times because you won't gain weight and you'll have this new body. What we will be doing for all of eternity is joining a worship service that will never end because of the love and the, and the desire to constantly respond to the goodness of God, to the grace of God, to the mercy of God through His Son. That we will be responding for eternity to a good God to our Father who created everything and gave us a way back to Himself. Revelation says this in chapter 4, verses 2 through 11. He says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne there were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, as it were, were a sea of glass like crystal. And he goes on to talk about these creatures who are singing and they are flying around. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down as well before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. They cast down their crowns and say, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Heaven's not about you and me, man. Heaven is about giving glory to the God who saved us. Giving glory to the gospel that is saving us. The God who is saving us and that will save us for all eternity. So 
I want you to stand with us this morning as we prepare to respond. The gospel saves us because of God's love for us through His Son. We talked about this earlier, that it is foundational. But when you come forward to respond with communion, you are looking at the very act it took to pay for the penalty of our sin. You are looking at the body of Christ and the blood that was shed. Because before we remember His life and His resurrection, we have to remember His death. We have to remember the price that was paid. So when you come forward, reflect on that and know that eternal life, man, starts now and it lasts forever, for all of eternity. Would you pray with us this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word and for your son. Thank you for the revelation of the resurrection, that you are alive. As we come forward to respond this morning, remind us of the death that you died, that your body was broken and your blood was shed, and we do this to remember. In the same way that Paul is reminding the Corinthians and that we are being reminded today of the gospel, let us come forward and remember the price that you paid. Help us with these things this morning, and as we respond, I pray that you would remind us of the gift that we receive that is eternal life. That in that eternal life, we glorify you. We ask all of this in the mighty and living name of Jesus Christ. Amen.